markets at least on the more positive side of things. Five, six, seven a.m. Radio Three. Anyway, dear listeners, it's time for this program to head off for the weekend, and you to head off to work after listening to Back Chat, of course. Uh, Peter Lewis returns on Monday to anchor Money Talk, which means I don't have to set the alarm for four a.m. I'm Richard Harris, and this has been Money Talk. Have a great weekend. Uh, just to look at the weather, it's going to be mainly cloudy, dry and cool, sunny periods during the day. Temperature in urban areas will fall appreciably from about 17 degrees during the day to around 13 degrees at night. Currently 15 degrees and 62% relative humidity. And now the half-hour news with Barry O'Rourke. Firefighters have put out a blaze in a village in Chunwan. The fire broke out in Wanglung Chun just after four o'clock this morning. It was upgraded to a third alarm about 40 minutes later. Around 100 people were evacuated from their homes as firefighters fought the blaze with six jets and six breathing apparatus teams. Two people were sent to Yan Chai Hospital for treatment and the fire was extinguished at around seven o'clock. Turning overseas, the International Criminal Court is resuming its investigation into the war on drugs waged by the former Philippine president, Rodrigo Duterte, which is believed to have killed thousands of people. The court said it wasn't satisfied that the Philippines was undertaking relevant investigations. The BBC's Will Leonardo has more. The International Criminal Court's original probe was opened in 2021 but was swiftly put on hold after Manila requested a deferral. The Hague-based court now says promised domestic investigations that were the basis of that request have fallen short. Mr Duterte came to power in 2016, exporting across the Philippines a brutal style of countering drugs trafficking he'd honed while mayor of Davao City. While Mr Duterte has denied reports of police death squads, the government's own figures say more than 6,000 people have died. The US Justice Department says it's shut down a prolific ransomware operation named Hive, which had targeted over 1,500 victims worldwide and extorted over 100 million US dollars. The BBC's James Clayton has more. We hacked the hackers. That's how the FBI has described an operation which appears to have taken down one of the most notorious global hacker groups. News of the takedown first leaked on Thursday morning when Hive's website was replaced with a flashing message that said the FBI has seized this site as part of a coordinated law enforcement action taken against Hive ransomware. Hive targeted international businesses, encrypting their data and demanding massive cryptocurrency payments in return. The FBI said the group had targeted 1,500 organizations and its intervention has thwarted about 130 million dollars in ransom payments. Five former police officers in Memphis, Tennessee have been taken into custody, charged with second-degree murder over the death of a black man who died three days after a traffic stop. The family of 29-year-old Tyree Nichols was shown body cam video ahead of its release tomorrow. Lawyers said he was kicked, punched and tasered less than 100 metres from his home. The officers, who are black, were fired last Friday. Steve Mulroy is the district attorney of Shelby County. Earlier today, the grand jury returned indictments against five former Memphis Police Department officers regarding the death of Tyree Nichols. They are currently in custody. While each of the five individuals played a different role in the incident in question, the actions of all of them resulted in the death of Tyree Nichols, and they are all responsible. 
Relatives of some of the 346 people killed in two Boeing 737-MAX plane crashes in Indonesia and Ethiopia four years ago are in court in Texas to confront representatives of the aircraft maker. The company is due to be arraigned on criminal charges despite a settlement with the US Justice Department that gave Boeing immunity from prosecution. The BBC's Samira Hussain has more. The families never agreed to the settlement that Boeing had struck with the Department of Justice. Boeing had to pay two and a half billion dollars in fines, but that wasn't enough for family members who believed that they just basically walked away and families never got any justice. So what's important about this particular court case is this is the first time that Boeing is going to be arraigned in a court and they will have to enter a plea of guilty or not guilty. Boeing pleaded not guilty to a fraud conspiracy felony charge. The U.S. economy recorded another quarter of strong growth at the end of 2022, but momentum appears to be slowing. Gross domestic product was up almost 3%, but retail sales are weakening as last year's increases in interest rates put the brakes on consumer demand. The BBC's Michelle Fleury reports. The American economy grew at a faster rate than expected in the final three months of last year. The strong job market allowed consumers to continue spending money on services such as travel and eating out, despite rising interest rates. Consumer spending, which accounts for two-thirds of all economic activity, grew at a 2.1% rate. Yet that performance is unlikely to be repeated this year after the Federal Reserve, America's central bank, raised a key U.S. interest rate to a 15-year high in an effort to tame the worst inflation in 40 years. Finally, the Japanese government says it's reviewing the use of official vehicles following reports that the Prime Minister's eldest son used embassy cars to go sightseeing and shopping during visits to London and Paris. Shotaro Kishida became his father's executive secretary last October. The opposition criticised the move as nepotistic. We'll have more news on the hour from RTHK. This is Back Chat for Friday, January the 27th. Welcome to the show. I'm Andrew Work. And I'm Yuki Tang. On Friday's Back Chat, we'll be looking ahead to the budget 2023, which is due to be delivered by the financial secretary, Paul Chan, on February 22nd. It's almost a month away, so the window is closing, but still open for people to influence the government's big money spending plans for the year. Economists and politicians are divided on whether authorities should give out another round of consumption vouchers. DFS is still on the fence and says he hasn't decided on whether or not this year's budget will feature more handouts. Other hot issues are now how Hong Kong can attract more visitors and if the government can or should provide more supports to SMEs. Political parties are urging Mr. Chen to offer measures to boost the city's economic recovery and help grassroots families as the COVID pandemic subsides. After 9.15, uh, in celebration of the year, The Rabbit will be looking at an intriguing art exhibition at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. Uh, we want to know what you think about the budget on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. You can email us, uh, backchat at rthk.hk, or just give us a call, 233-88266. And our panel today should be a Chinese New Year firecracker worth of hot as we welcome Holden Chow, DAB lawmaker. Good morning, Holden. Morning. Hey, Thank you for having me, Morning. I wish Happy every, New Year. <laughs> I wish everybody could see your red sweater and your red mask in the studio. Yeah, I hope you like it. <laughs> I love it. Love it. Uh, Adrian Ho, New People's Party lawmaker. Good morning, Adrian. 
Good morning. Hey, good morning. Hi, Holden. Hi, Adrian. Morning. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> and we are also welcoming a lecturer at the Faculty of Business and Economics at the University of Hong Kong, Vera Yun. Good morning, Professor Yun. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning. And also Yuki. Hi, good morning. All right, everybody. We're talking about the, the budget. Um, Holden Chow, we're going to uh, we're going to let you kick off. Uh, you want? Um, I, I hear you guys want more money in the hands of the people. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, we do. Yeah. Um, let me briefly just uh, explain a little bit about our wish list to the upcoming budget. Uh, of course, the highlight is uh, the proposal on the consumption voucher. Uh, we urge the government to give out five thousand. Hong Kong dollars a consumption voucher to boost the economy. Uh, having taken into account that uh, we are very likely going into a sort of a, a deficit, so we have actually scaled down uh, our, the idea of uh, the value of the consumption voucher. Unlike the year before, we urged the government to give out uh, $10,000 consumption voucher. But uh, this time round, uh, in light of the uh, deficit, the likely deficit, uh, we scale down the proposals to $5,000 consumption voucher. We believe that this is one of the way uh, to boost the local economy, and also that would, uh, on the other hand, help the grassroots in solving some of their financial difficulties. Uh, uh, in light of you know the three years pandemic, yeah. So this is the key highlight of. Um, uh, of our proposal. And of course, we also urge the government to provide, for example, uh, the medical vouchers for uh, especially designated for the use on dental care for elderly, because uh, elderly often find it very difficult to acquire dental care services uh, in public clinic. So um, we urge the government to provide, say, $2,000 um, medical vouchers especially designated for the use on dental care. And they could use it uh, even in mainland in Greater Bay Area mm. so that they could also acquire the services there. Uh, okay. Because we, uh, Hong Kong has already reopened ourselves and the normal traveling has already resumed between Hong Kong and mainland so people could travel easily. Mm. So um, uh, this is what we propose. Five plus two. Adrian Ho, what do you think of a five plus two formula? Adrian? Hello. Hey, Adrian. Hello. Yep, Adrian, you just heard Holden Chow says 5,000 plus 2,000, uh, general consumption plus health care. Uh, I, I hear the NPP has a different take on that. We have uh, a slightly different take on that, yes. Uh, we do not recommend citywide handouts this time because we believe that um, consumption vouchers, citywide handouts um, were necessary when we were in desperate times. I'm not saying that we're out of desperate times right now. However, they're meant to be short-term measures. And what we're suggesting is that we should be better uh, in utilizing our resources to help to specifically target people in need, such as low-income families, um, giving them uh, a rent holiday for their low-income housing, and then people who are living in cage homes that um, given out subsidies for these guys, and then at the same time try to give more um, subsidies to people who have really, really low income uh, and low-income families and people that really um, the 
really in need instead of handing out citywide um, vouchers for, for the lack of a better term, people that don't need it as much. Uh, so this is what our proposals are because we're the, the, the main reason for suggesting that for specific targeting um, handout is that um, we're going to get a huge deficit this year, um, $100 billion. Uh, or maybe even more than that. And this is the third year that we are um, having financial deficit right now. And we got to be able to um, utilize our resources uh, diligently. And uh, during uh, COVID, uh, we certainly understand that that was necessary for as short-term measures. However, that, that we cannot depend on the government to give handouts to um, citywide handouts uh, every year, given our financial situation. Mm. I mean, people are kind of getting used to them. Uh, Vera, you and you're, you're the uh, you're the you're the economist on the panel this morning. Um, do the vouchers have the intended effect? I mean, I guess one part of the intended effect is to help people that are struggling. The other part is to generally stimulate the economy. Are we achieving those objectives with the vouchers? Have we, have we got enough data in now that we've been doing it for a couple of years? Well, I actually run a simple analysis yesterday um, using some data to see whether it, it actually works. Um, the vouchers, the having of vouchers is highly correlated with retail sales. But um, when you control for the season, like, uh, you know, people, some, in some months, people spend worse, naturally. And when you account for that, it has no effect on retail sales. Of course, it's a very, very simple analysis. It's very indulgent. It's hard to isolate all the effects, but I cannot find good evidence that it, it helps retail sales. And, of course, that it would help uh, GDP growth. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think the goal of using it to, um, you know, help the poor uh, their other means. Um, however, I think there's a hidden goal. That is to make people get used to electronic payment. I think that is the goal. That's why they had a consumptive vouchers rather than cash. And I think um, I don't really have a strong sense of whether the government should handle money or not. But if they're going to do so, I think they should handle cash. Because people already use uh, adopt to electronic means of payment, mm-hmm. and then um, one thousand dollars of voucher venue, the use venue of it is less than one thousand dollars of cash. Mm-hmm. As you can see, some people try to cash it out with some retail outlets, and they're being caught. They're willing to, you know, take ninety percent of the value out from the vouchers to get cash. So why don't you handle cash because you're handing out something more inferior than cash to the people. If you really want to help the people, don't hand out vouchers. But Dr. Ying, if, if we're going to just hand out cash, then people will just save them instead of using them, right? Um, I think now people complain that the vouchers, you know, they, they're in too, too many phrases and then they just use it for transportation and, and normal expenses. So they, it's not additional expenses. So that would be the same because they would use the vouchers first and then, and then would use less of their saving or other income. Mm. So it would be the same because the pocket is the same. So um, that effect is already 
less than intended anyway. Hmm. Well, I mean, my family split on that. I know I just stuck it on my octopus card and forgot about it. <laughs> just kept spending, just didn't top up as up. But I think my wife actually went out and decided she, you know, decided she was going to buy something for the kids specifically with this consumption voucher. Um, Holden, what do, what do you think? What yeah. do you think of those arguments that maybe it should just be focused on the poor, not not used generally? I mean, you guys have taken a different position. Well, uh, two points in response. I think uh, first of all, uh, uh, as regards uh, Dr. Yun's uh, point of view. Well, I would prefer consumption voucher to cash because as, a, as compared to cash, according to the past experience, you see when we giving out the consumption voucher, there is a time limit and you are supposed, or actually you are bound to use it uh, within that time limit and the money would be spent in local retail entertainment or, you know, catering uh, business. So that is... Uh, uh, sort of uh, um, that is sort of the way to boost the local economy. I mean, small and medium-sized business would benefit from that. So um, I would say consumption voucher uh, would have that sort of effect. So that's point number one. Uh, in response to uh, Adrian's point of view, of course, I would respect his uh, point of view on you know um, spending of money on a very diligent way, especially. Uh, we are under a, a difficult financial situation. We're running likely deficit this year. Uh, but at the same time, as I need to, as I wish to point out, uh, first of all, in light of the deficit, we have already scaled down uh, our proposal from, you know, unlike the year before, we say $10,000 consumption voucher. Right now, we scale down to $5,000. So if we work out the um, numbers of, uh, well, if we work out the amount of money to be spent on consumption voucher, it will be roughly around like 30 or, well, 30 billion Hong Kong dollars, 35 maybe. And at the same time, let me also point out one more thing is, of course, we talk about how to target the poor families and low income families and provide them with subsidies and um specifically spending monies on those people in need. This is a very good intention. But at the same time, from the past experience that we also note from the government, that in the past, when they try to do these sort of things, um, when they try to, well, you know, carry out specific measures to give out cash to targeting families or low-income families, often often it causes a lot of hassles uh, to the general public because of the, uh, a lot of procedures. If you recall that um, some years ago, the government tried to give out $4,000 uh, to sort of low-income families and grassroots, which target these people. But it, that involved a lot of procedures and actually end up with a lot of hassles. And I will recall that it actually caused a lot of resentment um, in our neighborhood. You know, we are responsible for our neighborhood, our, our constituents, and we end up receiving a lot of complaints from, you know, the grassroots and saying that, well, we have to go through a lot of, a lot of procedures and, and you know, it caused them a lot of trouble. So I, I think we also have to take into account, you know, these sort of factors. And um, the other thing I wish to um, point out here is, you know, when you give out the consumption voucher, I say to boost the economy. But at the same time, it's also something to boost, 
you know, um, public sentiments and perception because this is something that directly go into their pocket. They could actually perceive that the government is boosting consumer sentiments. When we talk about, you know, in the long run, we would ask the government, for example, in our wish list uh, to the upcoming budget, we also ask the government to revive capital investment entrance scheme. This time around, we target those companies on advanced manufacturing industry, innovation and technology to uh, woo this company, come back to Hong Kong, invest money. If you recruit a certain number of uh, employees, then you will be able to acquire, you know, permanent residency, these sort of things to boost the economy. But this is something about very, you know, in the long run, and people can't perceive it uh, right away. Mm. But if you give out a consumption voucher to general public, everybody receive it right away and they could actually perceive that the government is doing something making something giving something into their pocket so this is about public sentiment especially you know having gone through the three years pandemic we have gone through these very difficult times uh that has of course dampened our economy we do need something to you know boost the public sentiment of course, reopening Hong Kong is one of the way that to, to achieve it. But, you know, just consumption voucher is another way to do this. Yeah, I've got yeah, a, I've thank got, you, Andrew. Yeah, yeah, yeah I've got, a, I've got a, uh, an email just came, just came into my hot little hands uh, from our producer today from Colin. And Colin says, uh, sensible words from Holden Chow. Keep the consumption vouchers going and extend el- elderly care vouchers. Regina is against uh, more consumption vouchers. She is out of touch. This is the best initiative the government has done and giving Hong Kong residents a boost. If the government wants to cut back, I would suggest canceling Lantau Tomorrow Project. Great for developers, but a big drain on resources. Adrian, uh, he, he kind of has a thumbs he kind of has a thumbs down for Regina on consumption vouchers. But I think the New People's Party was actually, you know, raising the alarm about spending on infrastructure projects. Yes, definitely. I, um in my opinion, I think I think um, I respect Holden's uh, and DAB's opinion, and I think that there's good intentions for the consumption vouchers. However, that we we believe that um, public uh, the the goal. Let, let's look at what the goals are. I think that there's no direct correlation that consumption vouchers can boost retail sales. Number one, and number two. Uh, we need to get away from, you know, band-aid measures. Um, and the government needs to be doing a better job to the real way to uh, boost retail sales is to attract tourism. And the government is not doing enough to do that. And I think that putting band-aids on it, letting people know, putting people in people's pockets, uh, city-wide people's pockets to let people know that they're doing something. You know, we, we got to get away from that stuff uh, right now, especially um, we're in this kind of deficit situation. And, and how about the, um, how about the infrastructure to, projects? I'm not opposed to um, handouts to specific people, mm. poor people, low-income families, mm. but city-wide to everybody uh, in Hong Kong where... Um, there's no correlation to retail sales, number one, and also, for the lack of a better term, you know, not a lot of people are in dire need of help. 
Mm. Um, let's be realistic here. Um, and I refuse to think that people are. And everybody we appreciate a handout, definitely. And it will boost people's sentiment, but people take that kind of stuff for granted for years and years and years. And then the government really need to proactively um, boost the economy, retail sales, tourism, instead of every single time that they come into this kind of situation and say, okay, here's a, here's a check, mm. right? Here's a check. No, that's not the way to do things. Mm. Well, um, the way to do things is tell people that here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I'm going to do to boost the economy, retail sales. Uh, that will, in turn, in kind, put more money into your pocket mm. and, in, and not giving you, hey, here's a check, here's a check. You know, you can't possibly be uh, running this kind of uh, 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 attitude right now, this kind of situation. The government needs to be proactively showing people what they're doing to put money into people's pocket, not handling a check. I mean, mm. let's say, for example, that I'm handed a $5,000 check, okay, right now for doing nothing. Mm -hmm. And then at the same time, so what happens next month? What happens the month after? What happens the month after that? Mm. I mean, the government needs to be thinking about recurring revenue instead of handing out $5,000 to people such as uh, for, for people who are not in dire need. Mm. I mean, I am all for specifically targeting people that are in dire need of help, sure. but certainly not people that are not, and mm. that people that, that absolutely, you know, and when people are spent not even using those customer vouchers for retail sales, it doesn't boost it, you know, yeah. things like that. Got it. So, so uh, you know, of course, I'm happy to get a handout today, but uh, am I going to have to pay higher taxes tomorrow? Vera Yun, you know, we've been running deficits for three years now, which was, you know, not really the Hong Kong way. I mean, the city was famous for uh, for sandbagging, you know, declaring it was going to be the worst year ever and then pulling off record surpluses you know, a year later. Um, but I mean, we're getting into the habit of running deficits. Is, is Are we in a situation where the money is going to run out and we are going to have to start hiking taxes across the board? And that, that could really impact Hong Kong's economy. Uh, we are still having like 800 billion fiscal reserves. And then because we have literally no debt or you know, those that are issued for you know market development purpose. So we don't have that. So it's okay actually to run into that. Because if you look at Japan and UK, they're running like, I don't know, 100, 200 something percent of GDP of the debt. Yeah. So it, it's not really a problem. And I actually agree with um, Adrian on economic growth is important because when you consider the effect of economic growth on retail sales, you know, consumption vouchers becomes very insignificant. However, I think the government is the one that causes the economy uh, not, uh, not able to recover this year. Um, so if you look at uh, 2020, Hong Kong fell with all the other economies because we were all hit by um, the COVID. And in 2021, Hong Kong uh, had a rebound, just like all the other economies. So somehow we were at a similar rate. Mm -hmm. However, in 2022, Hong Kong had a negative growth uh, of negative 3%, but the rest of the world is like positive 3 So we have a gap of 6%. 
and that's because of the misjudgment of the government. And I think New People's Party, you know, Regina is, is in the executive council, so I would consider they, they're you no know, part of the government. So it's uh, part of the force of the boss. And then you say that, you know, because of fiscal deficit that caused by their misjudgment, they're going to punish us. I think this is not a good reason to say that they're not handing out and punishing the people because they're always judgment. So, uh, you know, it's not our fault, but, you know, part of Regina's is too. So it's not a good reason for their party to say something like that. Mm. I guess there's not a direct line. I mean, Adrian, uh, Regina's not your boss, and you know the chief executive's not really her her boss either. But I mean, do you, do you want to get in a quick response to that before we uh, close out the uh, at the top of the hour? Uh, uh, I respect all kinds of opinion, and we just think that yes, it is the government's um, fault for um, getting into a deficit for years and years and years. Yep. For three years, to be exact. And then we are simply trying to basically say that the government needs to balance its budget. And then whether or not, whether or not that it's okay to run a um, uh, financial deficit, um, I personally don't think it's okay. <laughs> it's never okay. We would like to be in surplus. It, it is however, the basic that, law. Right? However, that we believe that the government should be spending money efficiently and diligently. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also that the government needs to proactively do some things and show people that they are reviving the economy. They are. They should be making people happy by putting people, putting money into people's pocket by doing something. All right. By having well, more policy, by doing more promotions for tourism, instead of, you know, coming out and say, okay, well, here's a check. Gotcha. I mean, that, that, All right. Well, may, sorry, That's may great. I just quickly add one more point before we... We, we literally are going to cut this off in like 15 seconds. <laughs> okay, it's just about the deficit. The three years deficit is more about the pandemic. So after the pandemic, I'm sure that we don't run deficit. It's more about the pandemic, bearing in mind that point. All right. Thank that's you very all. much. That's Holden, that's Holden Chow from the DAB. Adrian Ho from the New People's Party. We'll be back with more of this after the hour with Vera Yun and also some of uh, President Colliers. Uh, today, mainly cloudy, dry, 15 degrees Celsius. News on RTHK. And we're back on Back Chat. Uh, it's uh, me, Andrew Work. I'm here with Yuki Tsung this morning. And our guests today are Vera Yuan, <clears throat> lecturer of Faculty of Business and Economics, University of Hong Kong, continuing from the first part of the show. And now we welcome to the show Kathy Lee, head of research at Colliers. Good, good morning, Kathy Lee. Good morning, good morning, Andrew. All right, we're talking budget today. Um, and, you know, you're Colliers, great uh, property and real estate company. So we're going to talk property. Uh, property taxes. What's your take on what we should be doing in the budget? Uh, okay, so I think that, like, uh, yeah, government should be considering to uh, remove uh, some of the, like, uh, special duty. So we think that that will be good, like, uh, to facilitate a healthier uh, development of the residential market. Okay, and which special, do all of them or some of them? I think some of them, especially, like, uh, the special value duties. And then, like, uh, and then, uh, I guess, well, for people, like, uh, having the second home, because that will help, like, uh, a better, like, a facility, the second-hand market, and then, like, kind of, like, opening up, um, you know, like, uh, the, what we call the upgrading demand for the local residents. Mm. Now, the, the special taxes mostly apply to uh, residential properties, right? 
yes, mostly. I think like I think uh, uh, I think that was uh, some of them also apply to like uh, the um, uh, commercial properties. But I think uh, for us, our sales are better to uh, remove some of those like up for the commercial market in particular. Gotcha. Uh, Vera Yun, uh, special stamp duties, special special taxes on, on pres properties, especially residential. Keep them or get, is it time to let them go? Oh, I'm the very few economists that think that it should be um, continued and should not be lifted at this moment. Ah, so you're, uh, you're of a different opinion. So you, you think we should keep them and what's the rationale for keeping them in play? I think the goal of the policy is to avoid overheating of the market and and to, I think, let the bubble die down. But then property prices, when you look at it, it it's still like 30% above uh, the medium income buyer to afford a, um, I don't know, um, new home, uh, a not very luxury home. So it's still more expensive. Um, and, and then also, I think part of it goes to public administration. When you have a policy, after you live it, you couldn't um, go back and say, I will put it back again, like very quickly. So it has to be a serious decision. And there's a signaling effect um, uh, by the government. So when you, if you remember when they um, imposed this kind of stamp duty initially, uh, the market actually rises more quickly. I mean, it, it's even more heated because people... That, you know, the government also thinks that the market is going up. So that's why they should get it, even though there's a stamp duty. So now if government loses, that it actually sends out a signal that, uh, okay, the market is really bad, it's really poor. That's why the government thinks it's okay to live it. So it may not actually help the market a lot. And also it depends on which kind of stamp duty you leave. Because we, we only know that the transaction will go up, but it does not really say clearly where the prices will go. Up as well. Um, <clears throat> Kathy Lee, you know, you're looking at this, especially the one for foreign buyers, non-Hong Kong resident mm-hmm. buyers. If, if we, is there still demand for those people to come into the Hong Kong market? Are, are they still going to have an impact on prices? Or has the allure of Hong Kong diminished somewhat in the past few years, especially for mainland buyers? Or, or they... Okay. Yeah, actually, mainland buyers, like, uh, um, they only account, like, uh, for less than 10%, maybe 6 to 8% of, like, uh, overall, uh, residential transactions, like, uh, in the past years, uh, even before COVID. So I think they may be there, some of the major buyers in the luxury segment, but, like, uh, not in the overall market. So we think that, like, uh, that won't have, like, a big, huge, huge impact, even though, like, uh, the border will open, we expect some of the mainland buyers will return to Hong Kong, but, like, actually, they only are kind of very, very small, like, uh, uh, proportion of, like, uh, all the buyers, like, uh, uh, yeah, in the residential market. Yeah, I know in other, I know in other places, you know, people are concerned because they say, oh, they, they buy these properties, they don't even live in them, and then everybody, they, that reduces housing stock, and so prices go up. I mean, but you don't see medium and low-income <clears throat> residential housing with no, uh, with, you know, with the lights out and nobody's in there, right? Is it saying that they're mostly doing the buying at the high end? Yes, I think so. Like, I think it's very different from, from the other places. I think in Hong Kong, like, I think they may be most interested, like, uh, in the, in the, you know, luxury, uh, properties, in the, those, like, uh, really luxury locations, like, uh, but I think it doesn't really affect, like, uh, to the low to medium or even the general mass market, like the market in Hong Kong.
Yeah. Has the government gotten a little hooked on the uh, the revenues from those? Because I remember in the first couple of years, I, I think they were they were even the government was surprised at how high the revenue was from those special stamp duties, and they ran some pretty big surpluses off them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, pro-cyclical. That is, if the market goes up, it's, they they got even more revenue, and and so it, it's that kind of taxes. Mm. Um, but I think concerning you know special stamp duty, um, especially the international uh, investor part, I think the local market should like be for local users, not investors, you know, speculators. Uh, I think that this. Because of that, you know, Chinese culture, people always want to buy a home to live rather than renting. You know, in in other countries, people are okay with renting houses, so it, it is not a matter, you know. But um, when people think that buying homes are necessary things for them to do in life, and then you introduce a lot of international buyers, then I, I think the market does not go with the. Um, local demand. So for international investors, there's so many markets to invest into. Like there's so many asset class. So it's okay to close down one asset class like residential um, property for just local users. I, I think that should be the um, way the kind of um, housing policy goes rather than thinking that as a financial asset and then the market should not be distorted. Right, make, make make housing affordable versus making it people's uh, life savings. Uh, Kathy Lee, you're you're looking at the property sector outside of the special stamp duties. What other measures do you want to see in this budget uh, from from the financial secretary? Um, I think like uh, yeah, from a property consultant point of view, we also think that like uh, they need to look at like uh, the the assessment for the land premium because that will facilitate like you know that like the uh, development like uh, process in Hong Kong. I also have to like facilitate all other like property developments like uh, in, in the city, especially like uh, uh, when we're talking about like uh, we want to have like uh, the lots of metropolis, and then you know most of the land out there like uh, are actually held by like uh, the large developers. If we want to that uh, those developments to move a little bit faster and like uh, moving forward, so we think that like the assessment for land premium, we need to be look at it and how to like uh, make it more like moving uh, it, like the whole process and, and actually facilitate like uh, the development in, in that particular area. And, and how do you mean facilitate the development? You mean by reducing regulatory requirements, redu- you know, reducing the amount of time spent on uh, I mean, rezoning? Yeah, I think, yeah, I think like uh, maybe reducing like, uh, the, you know, the, the uh, application process, the reviewing time for those, you know, plant land premium uh, uh, arguments and, and that will facilitate uh, the, the entire, you know, uh, shorten the time for uh, required for, uh, for those like uh, land premium negotiations. What, what do you think the problem is now? Do you think that those those departments are underfunded and therefore lack personnel, or do you think it's because they're because they're spending a lot of time in consultation with the community? Uh, I think it's more like uh, I think both. Like uh, I think especially like I think uh, the uh, assessment. Uh, process for, for those lampium is uh, actually quite complicated in Hong Kong and then if we can streamline that entire process and then like uh, shorten the time for the applications and, and that will help. And I think like uh, for the consultation, I think that's another like uh, area which is more about dependent applications rather than lampium process. So I mean if they streamline the processes, theoretically they could cut spending to the departments because they would require few, fewer people to process it. Uh, Vera Yuan, do you think there are other Parts of government that could be streamlined, and there, the, then the government could actually reduce spending. Uh, 
in some areas? Uh, uh, um, I think the problem goes to strategic bargaining that, you know, people, they know they're negotiating with the government and they have, they can wait, they have time to spend, so they would always want to bargain for higher prices and then that goes on and on and on and on. Mm. And, I mean, if the government still want the consent from the landowner, if they don't want to sell at this price, then, then no deal can be made. But then the government doesn't want to buy it at, you know, a higher price than the market value. Then they're stuck and then it's not going to work anyway. So um, I think it's more about how powerful the government is, really. Mm. Okay. And, and, you know, in terms of, and, but Vera, do you also see waste? I've got an email here from Chris. He says, if our government has such a massive deficit, why are they spending so money on wasteful projects? For instance, here on Lama, they're replacing perfectly good handrails for new ones right across the island. This is costing millions of dollars that could be used for the homeless and poor. That's from uh, Lama Chris. Vera, do, do, you, do you see other areas where the government could be saving some money? I think they should cut some personnel. They're expanding too much, trying to innovate too much, but not working out very well. So I think they they should really stream uh, cut their uh, human resources. There are too many people doing things that don't really um, help. And I think for the handrail thing, it's like they have allocated budget for different departments. And then district council, they always want to fight for more budget. And then they need to think of a way to spend it. So. <laughs> True. You know, in the old days, in the, in the era of John Copperthwaite, he would actually reward bureaucrats for underspending their budget. They would get a bonus if they didn't spend their budget as opposed I to... I think Singapore also <laughs> does that. So yeah. we should follow it. Yeah. Y Yuki, we've got a couple of emails. Uh, do you want to you get into a couple of the emails we've got from listeners that just rock, rock, uh, rocked up? Sure. Um, so this one is from Shalini. Um, she says, with all due respect, is anyone monitoring the affordability of actually buying a home these days? It's still outrageous. Um, the call for boosting our property market supports developers and the government covers. Is it not time for Hong Kong to really consider structural changes and alter our tax system to a more progressive regime? Tax dividend income. The wealthy are getting wealthier and middle taxpayers are hit the worst. Land sales are an indirect regressive tax on Hong Kongers. Um, Dr. Yoon, what do you think? Um, regressive. Yes, it's an indirect um, latent tax. And so we're paying because, you know, about, it depends on the year, 15 to 25% of the uh, government revenue public you know, stamp duty and then sales. So we could say that we are paying like that amount, like 20% of the hidden tax. But um, it, it really depends because in other countries, you pay a lot more other taxes, you know, social insurance, medical insurance, and the general taxes. So, and then in, in Hong Kong, somehow you could squeeze yourself. Um, for the middle class to save that amount of money. And I think for the poor, yes, they are paying very high um, dollar per square feet. So that that is actually quite regressive in that sense. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, uh, Kathy Lee, do you think the government should be moving away from taxes on, on property and land sales as, as their primary sources of income towards maybe rebalance a little bit to other forms of income? I think like it's very difficult at the moment. I think rebalancing is uh, a good idea, but I don't think like I completely be moving it like uh, it's um a, a good way to go because it's actually quite uh, a larger uh, portion. I mean, 
make income of the government like for the for the like a more um, over a number of decades. And um, I I think, but like in Hong Kong, if we are talking about like a um, bordering the um, revenue income stream, I think it's a good idea because like uh, if we rely on only like uh, one resources and uh, one source of income, so so that means like uh, we have always have a, a, a high land price policy, and that will not uh, it's not a very healthy you know development for the uh, property market. Mm. But uh, in terms of the other. Um, uh, income source. I think we have. We need to study. It. I agree. Like uh, Hong Kong, we have a very, you know, low tax base for any other source because we don't have uh, like a uh, you know consumption tax. We don't have GST. But like introducing this kind of tax, like a uh, take a long time to study and like a uh, uh, you know a kind of like a. Uh, uh, a discussion among the whole community. Mm, I remember when the GST was mooted for years, it was super unpopular. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, I'll get an email here from Neil. Neil says, I think the contributors uh, have forgotten that the HKSAR government's financial plan was always to build a budget surplus for a rainy day. This foresight provided the funds to ride out the pandemic and still have a surplus. Uh, well, we don't have a surplus. We have cash in the bank, which is a little different, Neil. Uh, the long-term view should be that the government has done an excellent job in getting us through this crisis and come out in a far better situation than many countries around the world. Paying out consumption vouchers will have little effect in the long-term picture and boost morale. The government should plan for a gradual return to surplus budgets over the next few years, ready for the next rainy day. Virion, how, how soon do we get back into surplus territory, or is that not feasible for the near to medium um, future? Um, it could be worried about it, because we already got into some you know, structural problem with aging population, and then talents ran away, and even corporations, some of them are moving. So when, you know, some of you say, you know, we're still recovering, da, 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 I was like, maybe it's, we have already recovered. Like, how far can we go? I'm not quite sure about this. So there is some structural problem with it. But um, um, at the same time, uh, even for that, uh, we don't only have land sales. Like, profit tax contribute like 25 to 30% of our revenue, like mm. some years before. So profit tax is very important. And that's why Hong Kong has to run this business, has to revive its economy and having, you know, them coming back to Hong Kong. Uh, if not, then we, we couldn't have that kind of um, fiscal revenue. And by, you know, raising the other kind of taxes, like, you know, consumption tax or making the tax system more complicated, it actually helps uh, tax lawyers. You know, they are always the one who actually pay consumption tax or whatever because <laughs> they got more business. So it's, it's more like lobbying. But for Hong Kong, its competitiveness goes to its low tax regime and also a simple tax system. And that's how Hong Kong can stand until now. So I'm not sure whether we should actually change it to be like other countries. All right. Well, thank you very much. The sage words indeed from Vera Yuan, lecturer, Faculty of Business and Economics at the University of Hong Kong. And our thanks also to Kathy Lee, head of research and colleagues, for joining us today on Backchat. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233-88-266 and have your say. Back on Back Chat with Andrew Work and Yuki Tsung, and it is the year of the rabbit, and our friends at the Chinese University of Hong Kong are doing something a little special at the uh, the museum there, the CUHK Art Museum. So we are joined now by Dr. Tong Yu, who is an associate research fellow at the art museums at CUHK, to tell us what is going on on campus. Dr. Tong, good morning. Good morning. 
Dr. Tong, you've got a little something special going on at the CUHK Art Museum. Tell us all about it. Oh, uh, thank you very much. Thank you, everyone. And the Art Museum of CU uh, holds a Zundia animal show every year to introduce the animal of that year in ancient Chinese culture. So this year is the year of rabbits, and we have selected around 20 rabbit hours, meaning from the museum collection, uh, dating from the 1st century all the way to 20th century. I'm sure you have seen so many rabbits recently around the street and in the shopping mall. And you can also enjoy the rabbit culture with some authentic ancient artwork in the Seal Museum here. Mm. I, I suspect the rabbits uh, that you have on display required a lot more effort than the cartoon versions that I'm seeing all over the city right now. Um, can you tell us about some of your, 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 the highlights of the displays that you have on? Uh, of course. So uh, one of the special objects is, is a bronze mural of the Tang Dynasty, and the back of which showing the legendary Moon Palace, which uh, including a scenario of rabbit making medicine for internal life, uh, the elixir. So other example of the Moon Mural sometimes depict uh, the fairy Chang'e in it as well, as Chang'e was originally a mortal lady and become immortal by taking that medicine. However, here in the museum collection, Chang'e is absent, disappear in the mural. So probably the designer would want people to think that whoever watched the mural would have been a, a, we have a internal life like the Chang'e. So the mural here is not just for ladies' makeup, but a device with magical power. I think that's the item you can't miss in the show. Ah, so, so when the fairy's not in the display, it means you get to be the fairy when your face is reflected yeah. in the mirror. Yeah, exactly. Oh, good morning, Dr. Tong. Um, so I'm looking at the list of um, the exhibit highlights. There are a lot of items featuring rabbits. Does, um, what does rabbit symbolize in Chinese history or even in Chinese literature? Well, I, I think rabbit is the symbol of the moon in ancient Chinese culture. And people believe that uh, there is a rabbit living in the moon, as you can see in the mural I mentioned. And, and as the sun is symbol of man and moon the women, uh, rabbit is also the symbol of some female characteristics, uh, like uh, fertility, for example. Uh, there is a Ming Dynasty porcelain bowl in the show as well, uh, which depicting two ladies holding rabbits in their arms and a lot of children surrounding them. So the rabbit here was considered as a symbol of fertility in this kind of image. Anyway, uh, rabbit is with moon in ancient Chinese culture, and many of its symbolic meanings was derived from this connection. Mm. Now, I, I notice uh, you, there's a lot of talk of the leperine pharmacist, and uh, my, my wife is a pharmacist. I think of her okay. more as a foxy pharmacist. But, <laughs> but what is a leperine pharmacist, and, and why is the rabbit become considered a, uh, a healer or, you know, why is a rabbit considered someone who makes medicines? Or... Well, and uh, it's hard to say. So I think, I think uh, many experts have different explanations. But one of them is that uh, I think uh, some people say that the rabbit is, uh, you know, that rabbit is associated with, with some uh, herbs uh, because it's a uh, but uh, also, people think that maybe the the the, uh, the rabbit is living in the moon, so it might have magical powers to 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 become a, a deity. Uh, there's no uh, very accurate 
document talking about these stories, but uh, the people believe that uh, it is uh, it is a pharmacist who making the elixir in ancient Chinese literature, mm, including the rabbit. Yeah. Yeah, Doctor Tom. Besides um, the mirror that you just talk about, and also the seal that we mentioned, any other items that we have to look out for? Well, there's uh, and there's other very uh, interesting paintings of rabbits. Uh, this is done by the Ding uh, Yanyong, uh, that's uh, the the former professor in the CUHK uh, uh, Faculty of Art, and. Uh, and what what he paints is uh, one joke uh, a rabbit, which uh, means uh, to paint the rabbit uh, in, in in just one joke. So um, that's uh, that's very abstract painting, but uh, which which is like a calligraphy and also a painting. Uh, Mister Din is uh, is an early twentieth century painter, and he also combined the Chinese traditional uh, ink painting with those uh, abstractism. In the West art, so uh, this painting is uh, kind of combined the Chinese and the West style together, and uh, the the rabbit here is also abstract, but also is abstract as a Chinese calligraphy, but also a painting. So um, that's a very interesting painting in the show. So do you go out, do you as as a museum do you go out hunting down? Uh, like a rabbit collection, a tiger collection, a dragon collection for the Chinese New Year, or is this are these things that you have acquired as parts of other collections? And you just you just bring them together uh, for the New Year. No, we have uh, we have uh, uh, actually every year we have we will select the Zundian animals uh, like twenty pieces from the museum collection to hold this very small exhibition and to introduce the animal that year. So um, this is not a permanent exhibition, but uh, every year we will retain the, the exhibit of that year to uh, introduce uh, the Chinese culture, the New Year Chinese culture. So 12, 12 years from now, would you bring out the same collection or do you think that you would have new additions to the collection or do you have older ones that maybe you're not showing this time? I mean, is it, is it, will, it, will it be different 12 years from now when we have the next year of the rabbit? <laughs> Well, basically, it depends. You know, for the rabbits, we uh, there's no many collections, rabbit collections in the museum. Uh, so basically, twelve years after, you will see mainly the same exhibition here, but maybe there's one or two exhibits uh, rotate or change. Um, but for other animals like the dragons, we have a lot of dragon uh, collections. So you, you uh, every twelve years, we will a lot of dissipates in that show. So it really depends. Oh, so I mean, so I guess, I guess some animals are more popular than others. You might, you might struggle a little bit for the rabbit collection, yes. but you got the, yes, the, the yes, dragon, course. you got lots of dragons. What, yes. what, what are the most popular and least popular animals? Oh, I think dragon is the most popular and the least popular may be the snake. Ooh. Oh, the snake. So you, you would yeah. struggle to pull together a really great collection for the snake. Yeah. <laughs> There's so many snake art in ancient Chinese culture. I think it's because snakes sort of have a sneaky images that yeah. Chinese don't really yeah. like. Yeah, probably. Mm, okay. And I, I have to admit, I'm not familiar with the CUHK Art Museum. I've been to some other art museums in Hong Kong recently. but uh, So no, I'm assuming it's on campus at CUHK. But I mean, where is it exactly? Is it close to the MTR station? Uh, no, we, have, we, are in the, we are close to the main library here. 
So and you you just come to the MTR stations and then take uh, number one or number two the school bus shuttle bus and you can um, take off get off and in the uh, library and and the museum is next to the library there. Is it open to the general public? Of course, it's a um, free admission. Free admission. Okay, that's good. My favorite price. And is it, and is it, is it open like weekends? Is it, is it kind of a seven-day-a-week museum? Yeah, we only close at uh, Thursday. And then others will, will open. And uh, uh, Sunday morning we are also closed. But other times, and uh, including Saturday and Monday to all the way to Friday, it, it's open. Just Thursday, just Thursday. Don't come to the museum at Thursday. Other will be fine. No Thursday, but, no Sunday morning. But then the exhibition only starts in February, right? Yes, uh, uh, because we have a construction po- uh, project uh, for the new, new wind, so the gallery is a little bit limited in, in this stage. Um, the exhibition will start from the February 25, uh, which is next month, in Gallery 1 of the Art Museum, and ends in the May 18th this year. But uh, we have an online show which is available now in Google Art and Culture platform. So you just search CUSK Art Museum in, in that platform, Google Art and Culture, and you can go to the show online. Okay, so if people are planning to go, they can't go until February 25th, but if they just can't wait, they can get it online. Thank okay. you very much, Dr. Tong Yu, Associate Thank Research you. Fellow Art, for joining us this morning. Thanks, Dr. Tong. You're welcome. Thank you, everyone. All right, this is Back Chat. Quick uh, email from Leslie Ann, who says if the government wants to boost tourism in an effort to boost the economy, it needs to lift this ridiculous mask mandate. What tourist is going to want to come to Hong Kong and be required to wear masks both inside and out when no other country in the world has a mask mandate? Hopefully they'll come and see our rabbits in February. Uh, thank you to you for listening, calling. Uh, lots of emails today. Thanks, everyone, for getting in touch online. Uh, today's show was produced by Noreen Mir, special guest producer. And our sound man today was uh, Tung Wing Ming. Uh, Back Chat is back next Monday with Jim Gould and Mike Rouse. Uh, having a look at the temperature right now and the weather today, mainly cloudy, dry, and cool. Sunny periods during the day, max temperature 17 degrees. Weekend is going to be fine, dry, and cold. Minimum temperature about 10 degrees. It could get a little chilly out there. Right now, the temperature is 15 degrees Celsius and humidity is 53% at Back Chat. If you submitted a 2023 Primary One application form but have not secured a discretionary place, you will receive the letter of choice of schools for central allocation 